right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane. As always, I have with me Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. I am a sports chiropractor down in Scottsdale, Arizona. Today, we're going to talk about a a pretty hot button topic where we want to teach you about, hey, we have this assessment. What do we do with this assessment in order to put it into real life? I feel as though personally, a lot of people do an FMS, whatever it may be, or whatever assessment you like. But FMS is is what people would consider it as like the brand, but they don't really know how to apply that knowledge. They don't, they don't know how to program with that knowledge. They just do, oh, okay, you got a, you got a 21. What do, but what do we do with that number? And do each exercise matter? And that's what we want to talk about today is trying to pair up what our assessment is. And then, hey, how do you then program and use that information you just got and put it into an actual usable setting? So Alex, let's start it up. Yeah, I typically agree with you that assessments um, in the past have been, I mean, used more for show. Um, but it's like, one, I think there should be a lot of importance on the back end of why are we doing this assessment and what are we actually assessing? That should have a, a big impact in what you assess. And then as you assess it, your assessment is going to tell you certain qualities about your athletes or your singular athlete. And then that should have a big impact on how your program looks, right? So everything's interconnected and it's one fluid system. It's not, okay, we're going to do an assessment. Here's the training program. And then we'll do the assessment again in six weeks without really addressing it since then. All right. So interconnected um, principles throughout your whole system, because what you assess should apply to your end goal, how you assess should apply to your training program and your training program and your assessment should culminate to that end goal. So um, just like Austin said, fairly simple, use your effect, your assessments effectively and meaningfully. Don't just do them for data or don't just do them for show. And I, I know that's not typically the like the conscious thought that I'm going to do this assessment because I think I should, but the the common reality is that this assessment is not actually telling me that much. So the goal again is to get it to tell you something. Right. Have a why behind doing an assessment. You know how many times, like you remember when we were wrestling in, in college mm-hmm. and this is not to shit on any of our, our trainers at the time, but I could probably ask every single AT in that room that did that FMS on us half, half-heartedly to say the least. And they wouldn't even know if I asked them, why are you doing this? They would say, because we got to get a movement. That would be the answer. We need to get a baseline. That's what they would say, but they would never use the baseline. That would just be a, a thing to do because it was the right thing to do. But if you just do the right thing and you don't actually apply it, why why are we actually doing this thing? It's yeah, right. a waste of everybody's time if you don't know how to apply the knowledge you just got. Exactly. And the step beyond that is like we do a pretest of the FMS and, or of a movement screen, and then we do our program and then we retest it. And it's two completely disconnected things, right? Or we have, we're trying to get test retested, you get better at this, but we're not even looking at why that matters, right? So um, I think that has an important piece as well that what you test needs to affect a training program because otherwise like you said why are we doing the assessment in the first place just to get data and and that's again again how i kind of felt during that fms it was like they organized it well there was different stations we all ran through it like got 30 guys through an fms in 20 minutes like sweet but how did that impact our strength training Mm, not that much you know um you know (laughs) and and i exactly and 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 i could tell you 
I could tell you way more times that we were maxing out in the weight room and doing maximal effort tests that way, getting similarly nonsensical, um, data points that didn't apply to our training that, um, but those are more frequent than the movement tests. So it's, it's a, it's a big, you know, falter or a big lack in oversight. If we don't apply these tests, whether it's movement, whether it's strength tests, whether it's athletic qualities, you know, you should have almost like a culture around a test. Like your team knows what's coming. Your, your guys that are experienced are really good at it. They're giving tips down to the younger guys. And like, that's on a performance side, on a conditioning side, but also on the movement side, at least to some degree and they can evolve, but they gotta be in lines with the whole program. Yeah. And, and this is a side note. We're talking about assessing and one RMs are a part of an assessment, but I would just like to get out there that we probably shouldn't be doing one RMs for the most part for most people. And I also want to get out there that I know myself, I was a big old puss. There's no, there's no chance I was doing like, I was doing a one RM correctly. I was like, Oh, that's, that seems heavy enough. We're good here. And that would be my one RM. It's not even an accurate one R like a one rep max. Like people, unless you know how to physically get there and mentally, which is most people's thing, mentally push Mm -hmm. yourself to the one rep max. It's not even a valid test because they're not actually getting to a one rep max. They're just stopping short of it. And they're like, well, this is good enough. Yeah, exactly. And then you have the uh, the other side of the population myself, who is like getting jacked up for the one RM. Like I thought that was a really fun thing to do, but my form was going to shit and I was going too heavy. Like, and I was failing. Right. So it's, it's just over the top and you're not getting accurate numbers on either side. Um, I think as a strength coach, I think we can get an accurate assessment of strength via a lot of other ways. Like I I like doing the APRE approach where we have athletes do max reps. Um, The highest we get is like to a three RM on the APRE. Um, But I also think there is a, a meeting in the middle where what some athletes think is heavy is not heavy, right? They, they're just not aware that, their body and their technique can go far beyond deadlifting 150 pounds, right? So there is that teaching and that kind of learning curve that we go through to get athletes to get stronger, as well as not recklessly kind of test them that way. Yeah. But kind of moving, I mean, I love APRE too. I don't, I don't use it as much as you, but it's a very solid concept. I, I am a big fan of three and five RMs personally. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I can keep that. I, I'm I actually just had this conversation today, which is kind of funny. I'm not a great guy to build absolute capacity. I know that about myself. I know that about my programming. I don't, that's, that's not my thing. That's not my role as a strength coach. My role is to increase that functional capacity as best as I can. And I think my assessments kind of go towards that because that's where I get into my three RMs, my five RMs, because when I look at, it's really hard to say, to, to tell somebody, Hey, we're going to do a functional capacity test. So a functional one rep max and for them to not want to just load up the bar and not give a fuck about Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, really, because a one rep max is absolute capacity. That's, I think why I personally gear myself more towards the threes and the fives, because that for the most part is going to promote a little bit better form in my athletes. And it's easier to coach the form and easier to keep them in within that good range. Yeah. I mean, risk versus reward, right? Like it's like how much you're willing to risk for a, an inaccurate one RM versus how much, uh, are we still getting the roar by doing a, a three RM that we can extrapolate a training max? Because 
Um, while I, I don't think that a lot of athletes are topped out at their strength numbers, a uh, training max is typically not going to be a PR on every given day, yeah. right? It's not like you're constantly achieving the best you've ever done. So that training max can be, um, applicable to the rest of the program. So bringing it back, like if we do the strength assessment, how can we bring that back into the program, that training max or that three RM or, or whatever number that you specify for strength, how we can integrate that back in the program is we, we assess does this athlete have the bare minimum requirements of absolute strength per the sport that they're competing at? Um, by this time, I think a couple of weeks back, we released a force velocity curve that had to do up and down with different disciplines within MMA. You know, in jujitsu and wrestling are on the higher end of the force spectrum. Do they have the the strength and the absolute capacity to accomplish the strength feats in those aspects of the game? Um, yes. Okay, maybe we should pivot and start training our different qualities and prioritizing other things. Not that we let the strength go, but okay, no, they can't hit that strength and, and they're weak as kittens. We need to prioritize that strength, especially if we're in a good situation where we're in off camp. So it's it's utilizing that assessment and reading it. Um, and I think that, that that's pretty invaluable to tie back into the program. For sure. And, and kind of pivoting a little bit into our, we'll, we'll, we'll just, we'll use our screen just mm-hmm. because that's what we're comfortable with. And that that's what I honestly use in clinic with all my athletes. Um, so to make it a little bit more realistic for you guys, let's do almost like a case. Mm-hmm. So we have an athlete. I run them through all the whole building a fighter screen. We say that we'll start with the sideline shoulders. This athlete, he's not able to keep his middle finger on the ground as he's going all the way around. So there's a lack of shoulder mobility through the movement. Uh, and then in order to get his shoulder blades onto the ground, he is overarching that low back and then basically almost like dipping forward and making a, a reverse C with his spine. That's how he's able to accomplish quote unquote thoracic mobility, which is what the test is looking. So, and, and if you don't know this test, it's actually posted on our building a fighter page. Um, and it's, it has the entire test right there where you're laying on your side, knees at 90 degrees, arms right out in front of you. And you're going to drag your finger all the way around making a half moon and then back. Yeah, all these posts that we mentioned or any related resource are typically linked in the show notes. If you just scroll down there, there's going to be a link for them. Yeah, or we can just do that because Alex is smarter than me. Uh, <laughs> um, so if this were to occur, so we saw on on this test, and we'll say we'll say bilateral just to keep it simple. So on both sides, it's showing the same thing. For the first part, we we if it's saying the same thing on the both sides, is it an actual problem? Is it hindering their performance or not? That's that's gonna take us to different tests. We'll say it is hindering performance. So we do want to fix it. So for here on out, we need to look at shoulder mobility. So they're not able to get shoulder flexion and then a little bit of internal rotation all the way through. That's what this test is testing essentially for the shoulder. So we're going to then program in a little bit more mobility and it's going to be scaled mobility. So this is where I like to take the assessment that we did and that's actually going to become part of our workout. That's going to be part of the warm up. We're going to have them go through that same thing, that sideline shoulders, and we're going to have them do just a scaled version. So we're going to do five reps and have them move through, but they're not going to accomplish the whole movement, right? What we're going to do is we're going to stop them early where they start to break that functional capacity. So say they're not, a, they, when they're circling through and they're doing that sweeping movement, their finger lifts off. So the decrease in shoulder mobility at about, we'll say 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, or technically it'd be 100, 160 degrees of shoulder flexion, if you 90 from where they were at. So what I want them to do is they're going to hit that point, come back, hit that point, come back. 
and they're going to take a little bit of time at that end range and desensitize that in. We know that adding in end range movements helps stabilize the joint and it helps solidify the movement pattern to the brain. So hitting the end range and coming back over and over again and holding it for maybe a two to three count. Or this is where we also, I love it, can bring in the low back component as well. So I want to see where their low back starts to break. If they start to overarch that low back at, we'll say, 140 degrees, of shoulder flexion when they're trying to open up. This is where I integrate the breathing as well. So instead of having them go all the way up to 160 degrees of shoulder flexion, and they're not able to get there without arching their back, I have them bring the functional capacity of the entire exercise in. And then right around that 140, I have them hold that position for two to three breaths and they're stabilizing into the low back, forcing the posterior expansion, forcing them to actually rotate through the T-spine and not just hyperextend through the lumbar. And from there, that's going to desensitize the air, that the sensation in the low back that could potentially be jamming facets, all these different things. And this isn't accounting for any pain, by the way, if there is pain. And then it's going to allow them to properly stabilize that trunk. And then once we focus on the trunk excursion and expansion, then we can start to pattern the shoulder mobility because we know from a lot of research studies, I'm not going to name them all. There's hundreds that trunk stability and shoulder mobility are directly core, right? When you do range of motion and you check shoulder flexion, if they're arching their low back, that's not actual shoulder flexion. Guess I hate to break it to you guys. I know if you don't pay attention a whole bunch and you're not checking it from all the different angles, you don't really see it. But if I'm lifting my arm up like I'm doing on the camera where nobody can see (laughs) and I'm arching my back to get there, then that's not true shoulder mobility. And we want to train true shoulder mobility. So we pattern this entire thing in with breath. Yeah. And, uh, what's that? The saying proximal stability promotes distal mobility. Oh, yeah, right? I mean, I know fucking big words. I love it. I'm going to turn you into a DNS yet. <laughs> no, but like, and that's the the true function of it too. And, and I like that approach because then your athlete learns the test. You get to the chance to relay that information of why this is impacting whatever it's impacting, why this is important for the sport. I mean, tease by mobility and, and grappling. Why? I mean, how can you not? Or throwing strikes even more so. And like, striking too. Yeah. I was going to say I mean, throwing strikes more even more, more uh, even more so in striking. Like that's a, that's an easy correlation to get your, your athlete to buy in and to understand the the importance of working on this movement quality. And then the other important thing that that struck me while I was Austin was explaining that was like, this is a movement screen and we're coaching movement. So this is literally within any coach um, practitioners, anybody's scope, right? Like I said, when there's not pain involved, when we're not diagnosing injury, like this movement system, should we choose to implement it is within your scope and you can work with your athletes to improve in their, specific mobility or their specific movements to the patterns that you you see in the screen so it's always available and it's always applicable should be we working with mma athletes that's why we developed the building a fighter movement screen yeah all you need are your eyes and your mouth you got to be able to have efficient cueing which is given to you already (laughs) and you got to be trained in the eyes and be able to pick up on the different different things so nobody should shy away from it yeah. And, and I mean, there's a skill that comes along with those things like a coach's eye and, and then the cueing part of things, but, um, those are all learnable qualities. Um, well, and that I feel like something important to note is you don't just have to be a healthcare. You don't just have to be a strength coach. 
like the diet the dietitians that listen as well as the skill coach that's the best part is the that athletes long, it's, it's a trainable skill as long as you work to train that skill as long as you work to pick up on the movements just like you work to pick up on game and working picking up on film technique and all these different things it's the exact same thing it just takes a trained eye and you got to put the time in to learn how to screen right i, I totally agree they, i mean the athletes it's immensely valuable to the athletes because they're the one actually performing right so you can get with, together with two or three of your buddies and, and watch a few videos and understand that what you're looking for. So you can sure. implement that within your own team should you not have a support personnel that, that, that's coming in to do that. So um, next in the building fighter movement cream is the um, bear hey, position. I'm not done with that one yet. Get out of here. Oh, wow, 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 wow. Yeah, that so, was a long time on one assessment. Hey, hey, it's because this is one of the most important ones. <laughs> they're all important. We they're all important. I know, but that's I like why we're doing one. them. That's what the whole point of this podcast is to not do an ineffective, unimportant screen. <laughs> but let me just get out the healthcare <laughs> side too, because this is that was just on the programming of mobile. That's uh, not even taking into account loading. That's not even taking into account programming strength movements. But I would add in prone swimmers as well to train true shoulder mobility and have them stop at the given points where they're starting to hike. So what I look for in that is when they start to hike their trap, because that's going to decrease their centration. Can you uh, can you demonstrate the prone swimmers? On, I can't. I can do it right here. It's like you're swimming <laughs> face down. Um, and then then I start building in all of the once I accomplish the the task that is patterning and patterning shoulder flexion with trunk stability. Then we can start once I, once I clear up those red, those not red flags, but I'd say like yellow flags, then I would start bringing in loading patterns and bring in loading technique. And that's not to say that you can't do shoulder presses. You can't do certain different things, but you need to be aware that their trunk stabilization pattern is not matching with an efficient strategy. So you need to be cueing that actively as they're doing these different things and trying to scale back the load to keep them in that functional capacity. That's what the whole screen is for. And then Finally, I know I'm getting long-winded. I'm sorry. We're probably not going to hit on all of the exercises, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> but we're going to hit on some high points, uh, is the healthcare side. What are you going to do as a healthcare practitioner if they have these different... Well, everybody knows me. I'm a chiropractor. I love popping shit. So I personally, if there is a hypermobile, from what we saw, lumbar spine, I could almost bet you... I will bet you all of the money, unless they have Earl's or Ellis Danlos, that they have a less than mobile T-spine. So I'm going to pop the shit out of that T-spine, typically right at the lumbo or the TL junction and then the CT jump, the cervical thoracic junction and the lumbar or thoracic lumbar jump. So what that's going to do is those are a junctional area. For the most part, that's going to be a little bit sticky. And as long as your palpation matches what you already know, where those are probably sticky, then hey, light that shit up. And that's within a lot of scopes. PTs, I think ATs adjust. If you work on your adjusting skills, Kairos, obviously that's our shit. I'm also going to assess shoulder tension. So shoulder tissue tension. This is where we can bring in our ART. This is where we can bring our pin and stretch. Don't sue me, uh, lady. Uh, lady. <laughs> that, this is where we can bring in our dry needling. This is where we can bring in our cupping. Is it a neurologic this, Is it a neurologic tension or is it a tissue tension? Is it a bony structure tension? All of these different things we can start thinking about from that screen. 
that screen is the gateway into our clinical cascade. So we figure out from there, we do our different tests and neurodynamic tests and do it go down the Shacklock route. Is it actually a neurologic tension stemming from the disc? We can go McKenzie, but we wouldn't know if we didn't put this person through an assessment. And that's, it's, it's kind of like a catch-all. That's what we tried to make this building a fighter assessment is we want to be able to have you see something. And then if you're not in healthcare, Hey, this is painful or it's limiting factor, send them out. If you are in healthcare, hey, this is when I jump into these different tests and I, I can almost dive deeper and do that deep dive because you see that it's necessary because it's hindering their movement pattern that should be clean if they're a competitive combat app. So that, there was, it is. that is all I promise. That's all there I have on the <laughs> No, but I mean, I, I completely agree. Like the, the, and I, I, we had this conversation earlier today and I was talking about the diagnosing and, um, specific, um, I guess, prescription of movement and loads and everything like that falls under the healthcare scope. That's your, your job right now, right? As, as far as the assessment and seeing the general movement, that was the point I was, I was making earlier where we can prescribe loads. We can fix movement patterns as strength and conditioning coaches or skill coaches or anybody else we were talking about earlier. That's where we can see and try and address general movement patterning. Right. That's not it's not our job to try and diagnose and figure out specifically what's the issue here and what's going on. Of course. And that's and that's why you have a that's why you have a entire system. That's why you have a comprehensive team to work with or refer to. That's why you're not just a lone warrior. They're building a fighter principle right there. Yeah, exactly. Have a team, bro. Have a team. Have All a right. team. Next one. I want to get into trunk stability with the low bear lift offs. Yes, I was oh, ready to go. There. We have an athlete. Say it is a featherweight in the UFC. Just making somebody up on the spot. That's fairly similar to somebody that has. <laughs> um, Casual. Casual. So we have a 45 in the UFC. They do the low bear liftoff assessment. Oh, fine and dandy. You see some scapular winging. So they're not able to actually stabilize that scapulothoracic joint that we talked about in the anatomical training approach to shoulder podcast. And when they do these liftoffs, every single time they lift up their hands, their hips, almost, they look like Elvis. That's how much they pick. So if I put a glass of water on their tailbone, like we've talked about for the low bear liftoff assessment, which again, to put into words, you're in low bear knees elevated off the ground. It's kind of, kind of like a bird dog, but knees elevated. You're lifting up left hand, right hand, right foot, left foot, left foot, right foot, right hand in a clockwise, then counterclockwise fashion. So every time they lift up left hand, right hand, or right hand, left hand, boom, they're just pivoting at the hips. If I don't have that, if I have a glass of water on their tailbone, it's going to spill every single time all of them. So they do not have a good stable trunk and pelvic uh, pelvic control to stabilize that epicenter of power generation. So Alex, for you, because I've been talking a shitload on this podcast, I've noticed. Sorry, I just go on rants. I've noticed. Uh, what would we do as far as programming wise if somebody has that those things given? So they have scapular winging, and then they're not able to con- control that pelvis or control that trunk. Well, controlling the pelvis, I think, is first a learning curve, right? And we start square one, right? Address the breath. Um, we can talk about breathing patternings and uh, setting the diaphragm straight over the the hips and creating that canister, the cylinder, the power barrel. Um, whatever you want to call it. We talk power about barrel. breathing. Call it a power barrel. That's that's always my go-to. But breathing deep into the diaphragm to promote more of the trunk uh, stabilization and then the, the unity that is needed in the trunk to bring the upper body connected to the lower body. So when we practice that breathing, and I like to do it from a, a supine position, 
uh, feet up on the walls, knees at 90 position. That's kind of just my go-to. And then we make sure the spine is flat on the ground. We feel the breath. And I like the ground as feedback to the athlete's tactile feedback because we can push the spine, push the love handles, push the whole 360-degree um, breath into the ground and that gives the athlete feedback from whether we're actually expanding into the whole trunk or uh, what is typical athletes will simply only expand into their belly button right pushing it out that type of way which doesn't promote as much um, stability as much core strength as we need it so in that position where i'm lying supine with my feet up against the wall in a 90 degree position we work on to that breath promote the stability promote the the strength, if we can call that learning our pattern, a strength movement. And then we move into different dead bug progressions and we can do different core type of movements with this prerequisite breath and prerequisite stability into the core. Um, I think that's another gap that that's just a practical thing that people glance over because we're busy making our workouts hard or we're busy making sure the athletes out of breath or we're busy doing whatever else. It's like, here, let's all learn all this good movement in the breath work. And then now we're going to go do a 60 second plank and you have to make it 60 seconds, no matter what happens. Right. And then, and then your, your whole hips are dipping to the ground. the whole. Time. Yeah. Your whole stability, your whole correct movement p- posture and position just out the door. Um, that's where we implement the, the functional capacity. You're going to do your plank until you genuinely lose position. Right. I'm going to set you in a perfect position. We're going to do this plank or better yet, a dead bug or better yet, a bear position, just a low bear hold, which is surprisingly challenging. We're going to hold that while you hold position. Then as soon as we start to falter, we fatigue specifically there, then we're done. Right. So building up that specific capacity, specific functional capacity to be longer and to endure rather than, again, disconnecting our assessment and our training for our assessment with our actual training. Right. So we can take that breath and that core stability anywhere around the gym, whether it's core series, whether it's lifting actual weights in the trap bar or doing whatever that is, but don't dissociate those two movement principles because everything is movement. Um, uh, and oh, and I, so something I love to do a cue. I love because we're working with combat athletes. I have them loosely tie their gi belt around, around their stomach so that they're not just expanding forward. It's, yeah. I have them um, use it as like a weight belt, if you will. If you properly use a weight belt, there's a little give to it. It's not super ratcheted in like you see the bros at Lifetime Fitness doing because that makes yeah. no sense. What's the point of a weight belt? It's to force <laughs> you to expand 360 degrees and use your own internal weight belt, your transverse abdominis, as your stability factor. And every single combat athlete, for the most part, has a has a gi and has a gi belt. And most of them, if they're a higher belt, fuck yeah, they want to show that shit off. <laughs> so if, if I, personally, bro, if I had a brown belt or a black belt, I'm going to wear that shit everywhere. Yep. I'm fucking wearing Starbucks. I don't give a shit. What belt so do you have, Austin? Me, I, what's up? What belt do you have? Oh, I'm a white belt. Yeah. Yeah. Three stripes. Oh, big time. I uh, know. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> they gave it to me on my first day. Because I threw a black belt. <laughs> dumb, dumb. Um, but so, boom, we wrap that around. And then I get to expand into those different things. And then for the entire first, ed, actually, what I really like for people to get is the core 360, but that's an extra $55 yeah. that people don't always want to spend, even though it's a fantastic product. And I, I think I have three of them at this point, all the sizes for all my different athletes. Um, and Look in Core 360, Aaron McGuire makes a fantastic product. I don't get paid to say this. I don't get any commission. But if you want to increase your breathing, that that is one of the best tools I've found. Um, but 
even if you don't get it, boom, wrap your weight belt or your gi belt around. And I have them wear that for the whole lift mm-hmm. just for the first time. Well, and it helps just like chronically, even when we're not performing the exercise, like with that tactile cue, you're going to try and breathe into that belt regardless if you're, you're lifting or you're moving. Like once you kind of get that thought in your head and especially for me, like that deep breath that when you push it down and you kind of in it, and what it happens expanding your stomach expanding your lower back that feels good that relieves tension on the lower back and that that again is just going to promote a better stability pattern chronically through your breath to promote a better stability pattern when we need to perform fun fact it actually actively decompresses the vertebra so the our my our good friends over in Prague who dns they they did a study and they tracked the discal pressure the intrathecal pressure and with 360 degree breathing and with proper expansion breathing, it actively decompresses the discs actually. And that's why breathing techniques and, and expansive breathing is a part of disc herniation rehab. It's one of the beginning stages, but whether you do McKenzie neurodynamics or whatever you want to do, you always want to pair that with some sort of stability that's going to involve an expansion moment, which is actively decompressing the spine and taking the pressure off that disc. So fun fact. Yeah. And, and just like also says on a practical note, like this is an important piece to not glance over and just like I'm saying incorporate into everything in your program. That doesn't mean as you're going through your movement, as you're coaching, it's like thinking about your breath now. What about your breath? Are you stable? Right. It needs to become more or less a habit and a chronic type of breathing and a chronic adaptation. Um, as we can do that, we can put it at the front end of a checklist for every lift. But in my opinion, there there's a base level that we need to get to with the breath. And then we can let the athlete go on that. Oh, well, it's like, I mean, don't get me wrong, bro. I, I mean, if you've listened to podcasts, you know, I love breathing. I love well, it, yeah. And it, it's just like anything else. Like we're, you're going to teach an athlete how to shoot a single leg. All right. And then let's say now they, they're, they've wrestled six years. Okay. I'm not going to be using the same cue to teach them how to shoot a single leg. No. Yeah. And like, even like I said, like I love breath work, even I get bored teaching it. Yeah. How many times I've had to teach somebody how to breathe yourself included. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> like I'm still it, pretty bad at it. It's one of those monotonous tasks that over t- it, it helped, but it helps so many people and you can't deny the benefit in doing it. But if your entire training becomes that, then people aren't going to come back because they're going to be bored as fuck. And you're missing out on other potential, potentially more important benefits. Yes. So this is a lot of time on lumbar stability and then low back stability. What about the scapular winging? What do you do? Um, I know you're going to want me to say the two words, uh, um, joint centration. Um, so I do like those words. Big fan <laughs> of those words. You like those, right? Um, yeah. But one of the things that we can do is teach an athlete how to get their joint centration, how to get their scapula closer to their rib cage and bring about more strength that way via more surface area, um, touching surface area inside your body. So with that scapular ringing, we're going to teach protraction, retraction, how to actually engage uh, the shoulder blade. And one way that I like to do that, especially when we're in the low bear position or in a push-up position, I like to give the cue of corkscrewing the hands into the ground or gripping the hands into the ground. That on itself from a a distal position is going to move the shoulder blade and bring it down into a little bit of retraction and depression as well as push up and away. And then we can kind of close that gap where the scap is pushing up away from the body and we can close that gap and bring them more together. So strength exercises. Um, if you want to start from a real low grade, we can do like a, a, a supine floor press. Um, I've had a lot of success just teaching scapular mobility like that. I think the floor again is a great feedback mechanism. You can actually feel your shoulder blade moving. 
Um, pay attention. I think a lot of times with the shoulder blade, we overlook and don't key, continue to cue that uh, trunk stability that we just did, right? As soon as you tell somebody to suck their shoulder blade down and in, they're going to start arching the back, right? So don't lose focus on the the whole body moving together while you do focus on the one specific aspect. Um, but that just gets into our, our pressing patterns. Um, we can use band to work for this. We can use a landmine. Um, landmine pressing is actually one of the most healthy shoulder pressing that I, I like to implement with my athletes. I think it, it works a lot better than an overhead press just because like it or not, most athletes don't have the mobility and stability combination to accomplish an overhead barbell press. Right. So the, the, uh, landmine press takes away a little bit of that, um, tension and gets actual fluid movement through the shoulder blade joint, which we can create strength concentrically, eccentric or isometrically. Um, and then for the low bear lift off specifically, we need the isometric strength. We need to be able to stabilize chronically. So, that gets into a lot of our uh, isometric shoulder work or static holds. That's why that's why the plank and the low bear position and, and everything like that is so popular. Because if we do it right, there's so many facets that we're hitting and engaging within the body. Yeah, and like I, I feel like I'm going to sound like a broken record, and it's going to be a common theme. But like, so again, another study that was out of Prague that it's been pr- not proven because nothing's ever proven. But Prague, France, and China all have the same results, and it was if we increase that expansion, expansatory breath, and that trunk expansion in general, then it's actually going to centrate the shoulder girth a little bit better. So if I'm able to expand and make that that almost like that canister like we talked about and that stable surface for the shoulder blade to move on top of, so that means that my diaphragm is stacked over my other diaphragm. So my rib cage is in play. That sets the rib cage in a biomechanically efficient position that then the scapula is going to move over. So for the most part, a lot of the times that I've seen in, in the clinic with scapular winging, it's not even the scapula's problem. It's, it's the rib cage's problem. And if the rib cage is in that extended state, fuck, of course the scapula is going to wing <laughs> because yeah. it's dipped away from. So by setting the breath and setting the expansatory, that's expansatory breathing, that's going to allow us to centrate the shoulder and keep and eliminate that winging. Yeah. The other thing that I love to do, and this is where the whole bringing in the science behind things and the, the, the psychologic and the mental state is for whatever reason, anecdotally, uh, when I use external cues, like push the ground away or corkscrew into the ground, things like that, that for whatever reason clears everything up. If I say, Hey, keep your scapula or keep your shoulder blade and rib cage cemented. If I say scapula, they look at me like I'm an idiot. Yeah, keep your scapula uh, centrated onto your rib cage. That that would right. be the that would probably be the best cue that you could ever give to. I would any, agree. Any that, that would athlete. help me and you, and I think only the two people. Those are the only two people. <laughs> <laughs> but if when I when I start talking about screwing your screwing your shoulder blade in or screwing your corkscrewing into the ground, push the ground away. Uh, try to. Another one that I've used a lot is for, for for the most part, I say, I want you to have a Cobra back. You ever seen like a, like a big old Cobra where they got that wide, those wide lats and stuff like that. And it's around their neck. I say, I want your back to look like a Cobra. Dude, do you know, for whatever reason they get, do you know how many high schoolers I've taught who Bruce Lee is strictly because of his lat flex? <laughs> <laughs> like do this, like move your shoulder blades like this. And, and hopefully one day you'll have lats that matches. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that dude did have fantastic lats. Yeah. Um, 
Side note, uh, I, I don't know why I glazed over this, but farmer carries and carries in general are yeah, of course. tremendous. Yeah. Isometrically load the shoulders is best. Yeah, tremendous. So, um, and, but for the most part, those external cues, for whatever reason, when it comes to that scapulothoracic joint, those are have head and shoulders been more beneficial than saying, hey, I need you to uh, de-shrug your shoulder or something like that, or yeah. uh, stay out of your traps. If I say stay out of your traps, they're like, what the fuck do you, they, they, they know where their traps are, but they're like, what the fuck do you mean? And they just go like, they just drop their shoulder blade down, which really does nothing, mm-hmm. right? It's going to further decentrate the shoulder just in the opposite way. If I say push the ground away and they're in that low bear position, for whatever reason, it clears a lot of stuff up. I think it's because it's easier to comprehend and it's, it's, they understand what they're doing and they can finally push through one of the biggest parts of closed chain scapular winging is they're not actually pushing through their index. You see people do push-ups. It's a perfect example. When you do a push-up, they rock to the heel of their hand, the outer heel of their hand, and they're not using that quad pot of the hand. Like we've talked about the quad pot of the feet. If they're not able to put force and put pressure through that first digit, technically second digit, but first digit, that base of the first digit, the, the right in that metacarpal area, then they're not able to then centrate the shoulder and that decreases centration. It also decreases the force on the rotator cuff, which then further pulls the scapula off. So when you have somebody in a push-up, next time you're next time the listeners or whoever whoever's doing it, athletes and yourself, do a push-up on the outside of your heels or your hand, and then do a push up with your hands completely cemented to the ground. So every single part of your hand touching the ground, which one's going to feel? I'll put a lot of money on it that if you don't have a labral tear, uh, and even then, but a labral tear might, that put, might put undue stress on the front of the shoulder. I can promise you it's going to feel a lot better with your whole hand. Right. And I think unique antidote with that. And when we talk about pressing actions as well, um, when I was at CU, we had our athletes, I mean, they were performing the floor press exercise, but they had fat grips on the bars. I'm like, why in the world would we do fat grips on, on a press? That doesn't make no sense to me, right? Like, we're not working our grip strength, like the bars down in the hand, doesn't make any sense. And then I had a conversation with uh, some mentors and, and the guys that are actually prescribing the movement and we're talking about the, uh, just like Austin said, the surface area that the hand covers, the, the impact through the whole hand helps activate more of the, the rotator cuff is the word I'm looking for, more of the rotator cuff and helps engage the shoulder a lot more into that floor press or into that bench press that we're doing. So fat grips are not only useful um, for the rowing motions and the grip aspect that I think they get popularized for, but you can also use them on the pr- pressing motions as well too get this more centrated shoulder blade or more centrated scapula like we're talking about fun another fun fact you know what i've been getting a lot from from athletes mm. just because you are having trouble with rotator cuff they say rotator cup same thing right but it's just funny i just it's thought a, about that because i got that like five times in the last it's month it's a cup that rotates yeah, around exactly. around your shoulder <laughs> uh how about this let's pick let's pick one more i'll let you pick I want to go to a performance um, type of measurement, right? We've been talking about mobility. We're talking about kind of movement screen, right? But on the other side of exercise tests, we also have the performance testing, right? The athletic qualities, the, you know, specific skills that we need in the building fire movement screen that we released um, or even the performance screen we talked, I think, Correct me if I'm wrong, Russell. I think we had just two performance measurements that we we've talked about before. It was the the med ball punch um, throw and the trap bar deadlift. Were there I think any? We other? might have talked about all of them. We, I, I we talked about all of them. But we haven't posted all. Of them. Okay, maybe. But anyway, let's talk about the uh, the trap. Nah, that that'd be too much repeat for the trap bar deadlift. Let's talk about the. But we've talked about shoulders with the. Uh, 
med ball punch throw. Let's talk. About- let's go. Let's go trap bar deadlift. I want. I want, I'm here for it. You, you're in. You're in it. it. You're in it. Okay. Um, this will be kind of a good summary and a good recap of everything we've talked about too. With the trap bar deadlift, we talk about um, executing good organization throughout the body, good movement, good stabilization. And then this is pretty much our absolute strength performance assessment, right? So we're looking at how much weight can this athlete safely move three times, four times or whatever up to their capacity is. Um, so when we start with the trap bar deadlift, I guess I'll just kind of go through the technique that I always teaches feet flat into the ground, create the quad pod grip with the toes. Um, and we make sure we're in the center of the trap bar. I like to pack and load and centrate the shoulders, just like we're talking about before I get down, before I hinge. So that helps me kind of focus in my total body with the core, because again, the core is part of that centration on the shoulders. What pause, what cue do you use to centrate the shoulders for your deadlift? Um, I, I mean, I like obviously that's different per athlete, right? But the, which one do you gravitate towards? Breaking the bar. I like, I like that one probably the most on, on most. No, that's, that's the one I use. I just know everybody's got their own things. And if we can get good cues out there, good cues help people. Good cues do help people. Um, so, and, and then you, you teach your athlete that. So breaking the bar, all that means is when I grab the bar, I got the, the corkscrew, the twist into that, creating torques throughout my whole shoulder blades. So we set the core, set the shoulder blades, set the core hinge down and go to your maximal hinge so whatever that is to keep your neutral spine to keep your body and if you cannot grab the bar or the trap bar at that time then we start the knee bend then we get in a little knee flexion so i think that's that's an important point that the trap bar is a little bit more uh knee flexion knee dominant than the barbell deadlift or than a kettlebell deadlift or whatever else <clears throat> i think that's a benefit but that's not the discussion right now um so we grab onto the bar, we centrate the shoulders, then I work into that breath, okay? We work into the breath and we set the core, make sure the rib cage is set over the pelvis, make sure we expand. And my two cues when I move the barbell or the trap bar, I keep mixing that up. My two cues that work, feet through the floor is one, and then hips wedging forward is two. That's what I want my athlete to think about internally is when they're lifting or when they're still learning the movement. Um, if we have an experienced athlete performing this test and we're not, we're not running it through for the first time or whatever, then we can think about more aggressive external cues. But I like to, to cue my athletes to move properly through the glutes and through the hips, creating true hip extension, not just lumbar extension or um, turning it into a, a squat or an Anderson squat with the, the feet in the ground. I love another one I like just to keep them expanding as they go up. Yep. I said, fire out a fart. Because <laughs> think about it. If you're trying to push out a fart, right? You're yep. going to expand everything. You're trying to push something out of you. So you're expanding all the way through the trunk. So I say, I, I do the exact cues you use. Make that wedge, um, push the ground away, and fire out that fart. And guess what? It works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's pretty good. But I mean, and that's the technical aspects of performing. And you can learn a lot about how the athlete faults as they, they get to that maximal load um and and those use prison defense instead of prison defense prison defense is a good one because when your athlete gets to the very top a lot of my athletes have a tendency to kind of shrug and puff their chest out like yeah "Yeah, i lifted this weight right it's like that's not necessarily it squeeze butt cheeks get the hips involved and and lock in the core same cue at the end of a kettlebell swing by the way um but the faults that your athletes are going to make within this performance test within this three rep max are typically the faults that either they can cover up at a submaximal test or that they're going to default to when they fatigue, right? So so that's another insight into the test that you can apply into your programming later on is like, these are the weak aspects of your lift. 
because they're the faults that they make at the uh, the maximal lift. That's kind of your tell-all, if you will. So that's just kind of the technique and, and what you see with your coach's eye as we go. Um, obviously, there's weight on the bar, right? So we're assessing this athlete's body weight, the relative strength that they're able to produce. Um, was it 2.5 was the number, Austin? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, so, a one RM would be 2.5 times their body weight. So it right. translate out to about 2.1, 2.2. Yeah, yeah. So you can kind of extrapolate the NSCA puts out a good graph on um, like a three rep max correlated to one rep max and things like that. So you can do that conversion. But that's kind of your threshold, right? Can this athlete trap our deadlift effectively with two times their body weight, 2.5 times their body weight? Um, and again, you're grading that by, by, by weight class, by body type, by everything else to see, is this actually where this athlete needs to be as far as their sport performance requirements, or is it not? Because let's say I have a, a shot put athlete in front of me, their requirements might get to be a little bit higher than the 2.1 or the 2.3 for a three RM. Okay. Their strength is going to be need to be in excess because they're performing a strength and power environment. The grappling athlete, I think that's a perfect number because that's a great relative peak power um, aspect of, or correlation, I guess. So that number is applicable to our population. Um, and that's kind of the assessment that you can make and the application to your program as you continue with this athlete. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, so question. So say we have an athlete that comes in. <clears throat> We do that test with them. It's all fine and good. They're able to keep their functional capacity up to about 1.8 mm-hmm. times their body weight for a three RM. So beneath that threshold, they're, they're a fighter mm-hmm. um, about to be on the cusp of getting into the UFC. We want to make sure their, their strength base is at that threshold when they get into the UFC, yeah. but they're about to go into a camp for an LFA title fight. What well, do you do? Yeah. Well, it depends. I mean, it's, if we have four weeks um, before camp, then maybe we can do some concentrated strength work. This also depends if this athlete likes to strength train. Like if you go into this assessment and you determine that strength is a primary factor that we need to work on with this athlete. Um, and then they come to you two times and all you do is hammer with slow strength work with a bunch of rest, maybe not going to be the most attractive thing for them. And you might turn them off to, to their strength and conditioning experience. So understanding where they're at, um, for that situation, I would say we're, we're going to work strength maybe like like one day a week and, and and start slowly, slow cooking the process. Prioritize what you need to for camp, whether it's performance, whether it's the weight cut, whether it's um, power down the road. But prioritize what you need to, but you can still make the, those small steps into the um, into the strength side of things. And then they have a good experience. They have a good fight. Hopefully they, they win. They'll come back to you for their out-of-camp strength and conditioning where you can go a little bit harder after the strength because that would be the appropriate timing for it. For sure. And then how much How much do you, as far as strength-wise, say they have this screen, da 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 We see on the other screens that there's a discrepancy side to side. Boom, we got to do single-leg stuff. Mm-hmm. How, how much do you program in single-leg stuff versus double-leg stuff if we're trying to increase absolute strength, which is what this test is checking for? Yeah. Well, I mean, absolute strength. Um, I go to a little more, I'll tend towards a little more bilateral exercises because that is your true absolute strength. You're going to move a lot heavier load in the uh, a bilateral stance on whatever you're doing. That being said, I think unilateral work is tremendously important. And I think that is always a, a bucket or an aspect of my programs that I incorporate. I'm never not doing unilateral things. So, and you can take a unilateral um, strength to 
a uh, to an absolute strength threshold. It's just not as stressful to the organism that is the body than a, a bilateral movement will be. So a rear foot elevated is a split squat is a great example that we can load up. We can put weight vests on our athletes. We can have them holding dumbbells. Um, that is is trainable up and down the force velocity curve that I think is underrated as far as a pure strength movement because there's a lot of body organization that's going on. It's, it's a relatively short range of motion, so we can get up and down within it um, as long as you cue it and teach it right. So um, unilateral approaches are always going to be part of my uh, um, training programs, but I think if we go into a maximal strength uh, cycle or maximal strength, I'm going to give a little bit more of the nod to the bilateral exercises. Um, depending on these assessment, you said this athlete has a, a discrepancy side to side, right? Yep. That's, we know from, um, the cross-sectional ana- analysis, UFC pie book, that there's a huge risk for that discrepancy as little as a 10% difference can expose you way higher percent or likelihood of injury. So that needs to get a stre- addressed and we need to try and even up that strength, whether that needs to be an absolute strength stressor every time. Is kind of up in the air and debatable based on the context. Sure. And then let's do, I lied to you all. Let's do one more <laughs> just because we haven't brought up energy systems yet. Oh, yes. So we're going to talk about, let's do the explosive repeat test. Let's talk about the uh, six seconds on uh, test. <laughs> so discuss since it's your test. <laughs> since it's my test. Um, and pretty much when I was at the UFC UPI, we implemented this test. And the, the biggest factor about this test that we get is we get an alactic fatigue. So a fatigue or a, um, yeah, what is that? A drop off a residual. Okay. We get that through our 10 trials on the six second sprint, but also within the first, maybe second, uh, sprint on the air bike, we're getting a max wattage. Okay. So we're getting pause for a second. Sorry not to cut you off. So the test is six seconds on, 30 seconds off for 10 trials. Correct. On the air bike. Yes. Okay. Continue. Yep. Um, on the air bike, we did it with the watt bikes because we got a little more specific wattage output, but not everybody can afford a watt bike. So we'll settle for the air bikes. So the echo bike. Is- <laughs> yep. So you get a max wattage, you get a um, peak power output. So a peak alactic um, power which is a important trainable quality for striking, for repeat flurries, for a um, little bit of scrambling and explosiveness when you're in the octagon. So we need a picture of that and where that lies in relative to your body weight. And then we need a picture of the fatigue and the drop-off because in the cage, you're not just doing one of those. And I mean, unless you're TKO and or KO and anybody, Francis and Ganu, <laughs> crazy. Um, you're going to do that repeatedly. So, we need to have the the recoverability and understand how well our athletes can tolerate repeat sprint efforts. Um, and so doing that test, whether it's on a bike or something that you can reliably test the wattages on, um, I think is important because it's going to apply to the most intense aspects of the fight game. For sure. So say we do this test, um, their, their peak power output's great. So their first two, two, t- two of the 10 are fantastic, very yep. high. But then they drop off from 79%. By, by, we'll say 30, <laughs> 30 to 40% by their 10th. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you, which, which is a large drop. Right. What do you do as far as implementing that into their training? Say they're out of camp. We have, we have time to yeah. work with them. So, I mean, in the out of camp, um, 
let's start here. Typically, I like to tr try and marry our energy system development stress with our strength training stress, right? So if I have a complete oversight of an athlete's program and we're out of camp or we're training more generally, then I like to train more generally with the conditioning and we can um, pair up different qualities with that. So a GHPP phase, a general physical preparation, a work capacity phase, those pair up really well with the, the aerobic system. And we can build that at the same time. Um, strength, I like to tend towards the lactic because they're both kind of gritty works. Um, the energy systems kind of complement each other there. And then when we get into power training, so whether we're moving um, strength speed, high loads really fast, or we're going speed strength, low loads very fast, um, that's when I like to get into alactic work. That being said, everything's modifiable. You can do alactic work with your strength. You can do alactic work here and there and whatever. Um, but this athlete, we need to work on their capacity. Okay. We don't need to work on their one punch power as much as we need to work on their repeatability. So we can prescribe a little bit longer duration efforts, eight to 10 to 12 seconds. Okay. We can give max rest in between them all. And then, or, closer to max rest in between them all and then prescribe you know two sets of five for a workout and we call that alactic conditioning alactic capacity conditioning right and so that's going to prolong the exposure to the stimulus to this athlete and pretty much once we, just like we we're talking about with functional capacity training when we see that large drop off this athlete is at you know 50 percent of their max power output you're no longer training that quality workouts probably over yep nice and so, I mean, and that's a, that's a training phase for a lactic capacity. Um, and sure. we progress and, and go different ways from there, but that's a, and I mean, those tie in really well at the end of your session, or if you're coming in for a one-off those, I mean, you can knock that out in 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. And, and all, everything we've talked about, that's why we, we just did what that's about 45 minutes to 50 minutes. I'm just four of our upwards of, I think, with the movement screen and our, and our, uh, strength and power analysis. So I think we're at 13 or 14 tests. Yeah. We just talked about four for 45 minutes and that's how we show it's, it's so important to know the why behind what you're doing. You got to know how to implement things. You got to have these different pathways in your brain when you go through these different tests, because that's how you benefit your athlete, right? To bring it back to the first thing we said, if we run that six second repeat test and we don't know how to implement it, if they have that drop off, then why the fuck are we putting them through that torture? Because everybody knows that test sucks. Yeah, that's, that's literally my least favorite thing that I think I've ever done on an air bike. And I've been on an air bike for so long of my life. I don't know, man. I mean, we, we went through some ringers. Back in the day. Yeah, my con concussion tests or my concussion <laughs> workouts. Quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, but, we digress. Um, one more thing I did yeah. want to say was um, – you were talking about the 14 tests that we have. Oh, yeah. Those are our specific assessments, right? And we use those because they have a lot of big bang approach and those they're they're widely applicable and they tell you a lot. But in reality, and what we're talking about is, is is taking each assessment in depth. Each rep is an assessment, right? You can mm -hmm. look how the athlete tends to move, how they're moving that singular day. That's how you know where you modify the workout or not. Each rep tells you a story about the athlete, right? And then you compare that with your conversation and your rapport with the athlete. And then you get a, a better picture of their training history, of their training effectiveness, of who they are as a person. Do they like training? Like each rep is an assessment as well as we're doing these screens and assessments, um, which we can either give more or less value depending on the context. For sure. I think that's a good way to end it. <laughs> um, as always, so we got our contact information in the show notes. Uh, if you got to reach out, you can email, 
message. By now we'll have the website up. So you can send us a contact at the website, which will go directly to both of our emails. Um, If you need to get, or if you want to like, share, subscribe, do all the fun stuff, please do it because we want to become friends with your friends. If you don't share, like, or subscribe, we can't become friends with your friends. And then we don't get to talk to more cool people because we know all the listeners have cool friends. So please like, share, subscribe, do all the cool stuff that makes us talk to more people. And as all, this is Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Freeman. And we are out.